What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I didn't realize that when we made the brand, how much like everybody, you know, was looking for a little provocative and a little bit tongue in cheek, but like a sense of permission to be like, screw it. Everything is for me. You know, nothing's off limit. Not everything has to smell like roses and geraniums, right? Absolutely. <laughs> There's so much like sexism embedded in those expectations. Yeah. Like flowers and fruits are what women are supposed to smell like because they're soft and fragile and delicate. And it like kind of implies this idea of like female fragility and then men are supposed to smell like musks and woods because they're strong and animalistic. And it's kind of like toxic masculinity, like implied just through like the scent notes. We all have like this infiniteness to like who we are. And it's so layered and it's complex and sometimes contradictory. And we really try to like pull that to the forefront with the fragrances we make. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Ligorio Chafkin. Today's episode Breaking the Beauty Industry's Gender Binary. My guest today has taken a lot of the expectations of the fragrance industry and not just turned them on their heads, but rather swirled them around and mashed them up and made something really interesting. He's Matthew Herman, the creator and co-founder of Boy Smells, which makes candles and fragrances for all people. And while his products have broken the gender binary on shelves in retail outlets, he's not trying to eliminate gender from the conversation. Instead, he calls his products genderful. Boy Smells itself started as a side hustle. Two guys in fashion in L.A. pouring wax at their kitchen table in the evening and designing edgy fragrances such as polyamorous and rhubarb smoke. But soon, it started to make waves in the fragrance world for its unexpected dualities. Say, mixing vanilla and vinyl, or citruses and smoky scents. And those seem to meet complex individual people with multiple passions and identities where they were. With slightly silly, slightly provocative branding, the company seemed to nail its retail strategy. Then the pandemic kept shoppers home and away from actually smelling anything in person. I spoke with Matthew about the wild bet on his strategy that the company had to make and how it went so well that it almost broke his business again. But before Matthew was balancing aesthetics and supply chain demands, he was a creative kid who seemed destined to be a designer. When I was a little kid, I was always just creating worlds and going over the top with like wrapping Christmas presents when I was a kid and like making the bows look like they were crawling all over the ground, like as feet of the presents or over-decorating our house for Christmas or taking my toys and creating like whole new worlds and fantasies and stuff like that. And as, you know, I grew up and fostered, you know, my creative side and eventually going to like Central St. Martin's where I went to school, which is an art school in London, 
which is really based on concept and creative first, um, even before in product. It's just always been that kind of world building um, has always just kind of been a part of, of my personal, like just my DNA. I hadn't thought about it that way, you know, that having the name on the door, having a personality be sort of central to a brand's existence um, could be such a force. Um, but that's really how you operate now. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that experience in, in fashion. Um, and I hear you worked at Nasty Gal, too. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you learned about the business world from that experience. Yeah, I I'm so grateful that I worked at Nasty Gal for better or worse. You know, it, it had its ups and downs, which I think everybody kind of followed along as that was happening. But it was a place that really fostered entrepreneurship. You know, everybody got hashtag girl boss, the book when it came out. And when you were onboarding, they were like, we encourage everybody to have a side hustle and, you know, just let us know what you're doing. But this is part of the company culture here. And it really demystified entrepreneurship for me. Even when I was in school and working in fashion, a lot of like my coworkers were like, oh, we thought you were going to leave and like start your own brand. And I think it was just always like, I wanted to, an environment where I could really have free reign to do whatever I wanted. But then when I got to Nasty Gal, I also understood like, purpose and community were also like re could be really important to a brand as well and i thought and i kind of really valued that aspect of brand building and so i think at that time too i personally was kind of on my own journey um as like a queer individual to kind of like better understand what aspects of my truth and identity maybe I had closed myself off from a little bit you know just growing up as a gay kid in Texas you know I like there I didn't have any like specific overly like traumatic experiences or anything but you know you get these little kind of like micro negative responses to maybe you just acting extra or like being more feminine in certain ways and Fragrance was, like, just a really big part of, like, me kind of cracking open that door to a part of myself that maybe I had kind of made off limits for myself. And so there's certain fragrances, like the rose one from La Labo, which, like, I think I went into the store and they're like, oh, it's rose, but it's, like, for men to wear, too. And I was like, what? And I was like, you know, I was just like... <laughs> That's me, you know? And then, and there's a couple like Byredo fragrances that like were more feminine that I just started to allow myself like through this gateway of fragrance to like start to reclaim and explore things that I just hadn't let myself because there was this kind of like danger warning sign of being like, well, maybe not everybody who you value is going to respond positively to you doing that or, or exploring that side of yourself. And in that time when I was at Nasty Gal and kind of demystifying entrepreneurship, which is something I always wanted to do, own my own business and to, and to you know, have a free reign to explore my own ideas, I was also like kind of going through this more kind of expansive identity exploration. And it was just a really kind of formative time for me. I also like have always been kind of 
in love with the concept of dualities. Like when I was a younger kid, like Alexander McQueen was my favorite designer and he was always playing with the duality of like drapery and tailoring or like this, like sports versus antiquity, you know, like this kind Ruffles of- and like spikes, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I've always been obsessed with the masculine and the feminine, you know, like Grace Jones, Annie Lennox, David Bowie, you know, all of these kinds of people that were harnessing from both sides of like the power binary. And so like all of these things came to like this like really interesting resolution point in my life where I was just allowing myself to like really explore both of them. How did you make time for that? Like, did you intentionally set aside like an hour a day or whatever it took to kind of explore that? And how did that exploring actually look? Was it just pursuing different things that you liked and taking them in? Or was it really like an internal process? It wasn't super rigid or formulaic in any way. It was working in fashion. Like you're always going on like research trips and stuff like that. So like it was really me just like engaging in culture and kind of having this little bit of dialogue and excitement of like step by step by step of kind of starting to like realize that a lot of the things that were keeping me back from my true self were just social constructs that like didn't actually like mean anything. And it was just like, I just started to get more and more excited about it. You know, the more, the more I did it, the more I wanted to do it more, you know? And so by creating a, this brand called voicemails, but putting it in a pink box, you know, like pink is supposed to be for girls and boys supposed to be for boys. It was, it was like reclaiming this space of being like, I can like florals or like, I like florals mixed with woods or I like, fruits mixed with musks, you know, and like that shows I am more than this singular definition of gender or identity or whatever. And I just didn't realize when we did it. And I like, I took voicemails to work at Nasty Gal. And like, I was one of the few men who worked at Nasty Gal. And I showed it to all of my coworkers who are mostly female. They all flipped out about it too. Cause like all of my girlfriends are wearing like Santal 33 or Tuscan Leather by Tom Ford and Boyfriend Blazers and Chunky Rolexes. And like, I didn't realize that when we made the brand that that sense of permission would go both ways. I kind of was like, oh, I'm making like this kind of queer personal statement with scent. But I didn't realize like how much everybody, you know, was looking for that kind of like, you know, just a little provocative and a little bit tongue in cheek, but like a sense of permission to be like, screw it. Everything is for me. You know, nothing's off limit. Not everything has to smell like roses and geraniums, right? Absolutely. There's so <laughs> much like sexism embedded in those expectations. Yeah. Like flowers and fruits are what women are supposed to smell like because they're soft and fragile and delicate. And it like kind of implies this idea of like female fragility and then men are supposed to smell like musks and woods because they're strong and animalistic. And it's kind of like toxic masculinity, like implied just through like the scent notes themselves. And so I found all that like really interesting. And, and we do this thing where we like combine those things together to try to like represent what modern identity is today. People are complex and they wear a lot of roles. And like, whether you're in your like, podcaster drag or your yoga drag or picking your kids up from school drag or your work drag or whatever it is, you know, we all have this infiniteness to like who we are and it's so layered and it's complex and sometimes contradictory. And we really try to like 
pull that to the forefront with the fragrances we make. So what was that sort of genesis of Voice Smells? When did you, you started it as a side hustle, but when did it become like a real thing to you? Like this is going to be a company, this is the brand, this is what it stands for. Well, we started just kind of making candles in our kitchen. And then we got like our first PO and we were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And we just stayed up all night and like laid out the, the dining room table with just like hundreds and hundreds of vessels and just was like, you know, pouring every single one ourselves and spilling fragrance oil on the ground. Like my hardwood floors will never be the same, you know? <laughs> we slowly just built, you know, we hired a friend as our first employee and we finally moved out of the house that I'm in now to an office about five years ago. You know, we built every year. It was like 100%, 150% growth, you know. We were really like a wholesale brand. I think people think of us because the internet's been so kind to us and social media has been so kind to us that I think people think of us as this like D to C brand. And for a long time, like our first three years, we really weren't. We were really like just a wholesale brand. We had like a, we had a shop on Squarespace, but it was like a small contributor to gross revenue. And that makes complete sense when you think of what your product is, which is was a candle and fragrance, which is something before the pandemic, no one in their right mind would buy on the internet just without smelling it. Now, I can understand why people think that it's a D2C brand because it is beautifully packaged and the brand is really clean and, and it's got that sort of aesthetic to it. But... You know, it makes sense um, that you didn't think, like, let's be just D2C from the start. There was no no reason. But then the pandemic sort of shifted everything, right? Like, how did that blow things up for your brand? So in um, December, before the pandemic, we decided to grow. We have to invest in digital. So um, we asked around and we found, like, a great digital marketing out-of-house firm that um, has been a close collaborator with us ever since. We also had our first, like, large-scale hit product with um, Slow Burn, our collaboration with Casey Musgraves, a candle based off of one of her songs. And then we went into the pandemic, and it was kind of this trifecta of, like, putting a lot of fuel on a smoldering fire of D2C and digital marketing that like we just had not tapped into. The buzz and our PR team could tell you, but I think it sold out like five or six times that year with the slow burn candle and we just couldn't make enough. And then obviously everybody being at home and reconsidering like what does home mean to me? You know, I think things were already shifting in that direction where because of social media, like the home started to become a reflection of the self and like in people's identities. It like started to become more of a sanctuary. It was a reflection on, of like taste, et cetera. And I think all of those things just with the, when it went into the pandemic, like you can look at like, I think it was like March 12th through 19th or something of that year when it was like the stay at home orders came. And it was just like a vertical spike <laughs> for the brand. Wow. That's so fascinating. For me personally, it took a few months for the reality to set in that I hadn't smelled anything outside of my apartment for months, you know? And I was like, wait, I'm really bored here. You know, I think people started to be aware of of their their senses and their their needs and what they were missing reacting to the outside world. 
it really became really hard to like chapter a day because you were just in one spot the whole time. Yeah. So it's like just lighting a candle and like having different moments within the day within your own home, I think for me at least became like a really important part of like staying sane. Do you have a number or like a percentage growth for 2020 uh, for digital or or a number that's stuck in your head? 1,000% growth. That wow. Year. Wow. That's intense. And then 400% overall growth for the company. And we shut off D2C for three months because like, you know, as soon as it came, like every major was just canceling POs. Like no one was like, they're like, we have no idea what's happening. We're not spending a dime. Like, like we are not taking on any new product. And from what I hear from the Nordstrom team at the time, like reopening the purchase orders for home fragrance was like one of the first things that the leadership team did there. So while we did turn off wholesale, because we can only make, get enough inventory to fund, to, to like supply D2C, we still had 50% growth in wholesale despite taking a whole quarter off that year. Let's talk a little bit more about wholesale and about retail. You describe the brand as genderful, and there's this whole movement right now about breaking the gender binary and the beauty counter. You know, there's there's men's shelves and there's women's shelves, and that is really weird for some brands like your own, which don't really have a type of person even they're going for, right? Um, so, and can apply to so many different um, individuals. So let's talk about what it was really like kind of dealing with going into retail and the conversations that you'd have to have um, with retailers and how you've had to inform them as well as just deal with their existing ideas. Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, like, when it comes to the retail landscape, a lot of the buy dollars are still divided on this binary gender formula. Even the buying teams are divided between the men's buyers and the women's buyers. The digital data that you get back is still based on like your female audience and your male audience. So, you know, that's a difficult thing. We we tend to look at our audiences in interest groups. Like they're into this, they're into entertainment, they're into music, you know, like we look at our cohorts more in like common interests than we do in a gender binary way. But what I love about the beauty floor is, which is where we are in Nordstrom specifically, is that the dollars are all there. Like it's assumed, I guess a little bit that at least like color cosmetics, or at least it was back when we started the brand, color cosmetics were for girls. I think that that's also changing pretty rapidly. But, you know, the beauty floor also shifted from being a place of just pure beauty and more of a place of wellness and skincare. And that's already felt like a lot more universal. There was a shift already happening. It's not like we went in there and like changed retail or something like that. But I I do think we played a part in a larger cultural shift. But Honestly, like every major department store that we've worked with has been just really excited about bringing us on as a brand, which is so lucky and so cool. And I feel so fortunate for, but I think they are reading the writing on the walls too. You know, I think that there's a lot of internal company directives to open that space up to a much wider and more inclusive audience. And I think that especially millennial and Gen Z consumers like have a really, really evolved sense of what an equitable version of inclusion looks like. And they want to see 
the places that they shop and the brands that they engage with reflect their vision for that. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm really, it's super exciting to be able to be like, this is the stuff I believe in and demand is there for brands to be speaking that way and, and showing up that way for them. What would you imagine the department store of the future might look like um, or the, I don't know, target of the future? I feel like the cosmetics department is still very feminine, like, and it could be a little more welcoming to all people. Well, I think as like a society, we're over masculine in general. So I think like any shift is going to feel more feminine, you know, because there's just a giant rebalancing of values. I hope that's happening. Um, I mean, there's a lot of contrary evidence, but, uh, you know, in, in politics and stuff like that. But I do think, though, for the customer that we're talking to, that they're looking for brands like voicemails that are here to, like, work towards a version of an equitable reality in a future where, you know, not like race, body shape, gender, all things are invited to the table. And when I think of, you know, a future retail space that fosters that, it's more like kind of more like all human beings welcome, you know, like, and I think that's why like even like a futuristic aesthetic almost is like feels really predominant right now, because I think if we think of ourselves as like beings almost, it's almost like alien in a way to like what's come before, you know, so I think that this hyper modern, almost futuristic aesthetic almost speaks to like a world where like, you know, gender and race and body shape and all these things like kind of just don't matter. And it's almost like we got to like start over, you know, versus like build on what's come before. You and your co-founder were two guys getting into the fragrance industry. I imagine that didn't come without challenges though. What was like the biggest challenge you went through in the first couple of years of just establishing the brand? I think, you know, units are like the biggest challenge when you start a brand, right? You know, we, our first version of our vessel was a stock vessel. You know, it was something that we could buy with no minimum quantity off of the internet. And our boxes, you know, we put the label from the front of the candle on the back of each box. So like, the box we use for every single scent is the same box. And we just like labeled it on the back with like the candle scent that was on it and put like, and if we needed to put a barcode, we just like added it on the bottom. So we had a lot of ability to be nimble and flexible in our product assortment. And so if one scent took off, we could very easily just by ordering more fragrance oils, like run and chase into the units that we needed if something like started to take off or if something was seasonal, because obviously when you start a business, you have no historical data on like what the ebbs and flows and like what we didn't know, which sense would be seasonal. We didn't know what would do well during holiday, what would be do well during summer. So having that flexibility in raw materials, like really was to our advantage at the beginning. The things that we didn't know were, we didn't know anything about fragrance, you know? It was literally like we were buying stuff off the internet and mixing it in jugs at home and, like, you know, I mean, dumb luck, really. Like, looking back, <laughs> like, you know, looking back, it was like it was like bathtub gin version of, like, <laughs> perfume making. Um, but some of those scents are still some of our best sellers. 
tell me like one thing that no one knows about the fragrance industry that you learned. Like what are some of the, what are some of the secrets? I imagine that it's sort of an insider club. We work with like big famous fragrance houses now, some of the best in the world and we're nominated for Fragrance Foundation Awards, which is wild and I get to work with my idols, you know, at these fragrance houses, perfumers that like I never even dreamed to dream that big to work with these people and now and now we get to which is so, so, so wild. But, you know, when we started working with them, I was like, well, how much is it going to cost for us to develop a scent with this famous perfumer? And they're like, oh, no, it's free. You just have to buy the fragrance from us forever, you know? Like, (laughs) and so I, which I was just like, what? Like, we get to work with, like, all of our idols for free. And the only thing that we have to pay for is, like, they get awarded the business at the end of the day that we are, they're, they're then the nominated supplier for whichever fragrances they develop. I was like shocked. I was like, oh my God, this is going to cost us a fortune to work, you know? And they really welcomed us with open arms and we have just beautiful relationships with these amazing individuals that have helped us shape our brand DNA from an olfactive perspective and it was just crazy. Like the first time we went to like a big perfume meeting, they showed us a trend book, you know, of like what's happening in the fragrance world. And we were just like, what are we doing here? We're so out of our league. They're going to find out we're total frauds like any second. And then we were going through the trend book and like Boy Smells was on like four different pages in this like 36 page document. And I was just like, they're looking to us. Like I was like, you know, when you come from a different industry, I think it's so easy to have this imposter syndrome. And you're just like, fake it till we make it. Just keep smiling. Like, no one's going to find out you're a fraud. And then to go and arrive at like kind of the place where to you is like the Mount Olympus, you know what I mean, of the industry. And then realize that like, you've actually been invited there. Like it, it, it just like totally blew my mind. That is so cool. So despite that you work with these famous um, perfumers, you actually come up with a lot of the fragrances still, right? Um, tell me your process. So um, I always start with, because I went to fashion design school, I'm just like highly, highly visual. It's always like a concept, a mood board, you know, like it. it's always super layered. Tell me some know. of the weird stuff that ends up on your mood boards. Like all sorts of stuff, just like, like Cy Tombly paintings, like Andy Warhol Polaroids of Dolly Parton, like, you know, a, a lot of like queer photography. Like, you know, it's all about like weaving a mood. And for me and coming from fashion, like we'll weave together a lot of things that don't seem to have any relationship to each other. But like when they're collaged together, it starts to kind of like be provocative and poke holes kind of in like, oh, I never thought about this with that, you know? And you start to tie things together in really unexpected ways. And that sense of duality that I was talking about earlier really always, like, weaves into the fragrances we make. So, like, while something might be soft and romantic, it's also, like, strong and, like, empowering. And while something might be, like, you know, sharp and crisp, it's also lush and raw and, like, juicy, you know? So all of these things, like, we're always trying to pull out two sides of a coin or, you know, like, mixing vinyl and vanilla or mixing, like, smoke and flowers or musk and fruit. You know, this is always kind of, like, 
these unexpected dualities is always kind of driving our scent creation. And, and we call that gender full. So taking something that might have previously been associated as masculine, taking something that might have been previously associated as feminine and like harnessing both. And rather than being genderless, like talking about the fullness of things and, 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 and embracing the dualities of life and like being more than like one, a singular narrow definition. When we come back, I'll talk with Matthew about how he made the biggest leap of his career and then burn through his savings in 18 months. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Tell me on a totally different note, how did you fund the business? Me and David did it nights and weekends for about a year, both having full-time jobs. David quit his job first. We, then we hired a friend, and then I was still working a full-time job that was a very good job, good benefits, good salary, a design director role um, in fashion. And I eventually quit as well, and that was like the big leap. I burned through all my savings um, in about, uh, over about 18 months, not paying myself at all. So it was about two and a half years into the business before... I paid myself a cent and, you know, we operated the the entire business out of the house. So no overhead, no payroll. And we were just every single cent we made, we put into more inventory. We took small loans from friends and families when it came to start to like have to put in purchase orders for seasonal buying. So in June or July, when you have to start buying into holiday inventory, which is like the big, big time for candles and home fragrance, especially, you know, we did do some loans from friends and family, but we really just doubled down on every cent we made. And I realize that is not a typical route for most businesses. Um, and then during the pandemic year, it's like the margin on D to C was so much greater than our wholesale business. And the ROI on the digital marketing, it being a pandemic, us never having tapped into it, slow burn, all those things. It was a very, very profitable year. And it was our fastest growing year. And I recognize that most businesses would need to do an angel seed pre-series A round, something like that in order to like usually sustain that kind of growth. So a lot of grit and a lot of luck, I think that really helped us. We're now at a time in our business, though, where like, you know, the scale of growth that we want to do and need to do requires more institutional type of financing. So we do have a financial lending partner that where we lend against our raw materials, we lend against our POs, we lend against our projections and stuff like that, which is allows us to have more flexibility. It allows us to buy into deeper inventory to to help fund the growth we need to. Yeah, yeah, that's great. 
And you're growing your team and your leadership team too. Is that right? Yes. Yes. We hired our CEO. I don't know. It's been over a year now, I think. Oh, wow. So you don't have to do everything anymore? Is that right? No, I I don't have to do everything anymore. But unfortunately, I did do, we did do everything ourselves for a long time. So like when our CEO came in, like cleaning up our bookkeeping and our finance and hiring a controller and building out that finance team was like really important because a lot of our financial numbers were generally accurate for, for past years. <laughs> but, but, you know, but, but we... You I'm know, sure your accountant loved you. Yeah, we, we didn't have the <laughs> diligence that we do now. We also probably too hastily adopted an ERP system that doesn't truly support where we are as a business now. Um, so there's a couple of like technology um, priorities uh, for the like short-term horizon that um, that everybody in our team is working on now, but we stuff we should have done probably like two years ago that we're that we're really just kind of like firming up now. And like honestly, without the right tools and systems, it's just it's really hard to scale. You've had a giving back program for years now, right? I mean, that's something that was sort of um, it seemed to be important to you and, and the business. I want to talk to you about that um, and kind of the contributions you've made um, and what it means, like to customers, to employees, to yourself. We donate to a, a, a wide variety of charitable um, organizations all throughout the year, but during June, especially, which is Pride Month. About two years ago, we did our first Pride collection, and we were able to give back $50,000 to the Trevor Project. And then last year, we gave $100,000 back to the Trevor Project. So we have about $150,000 that we've given to the Trevor Project over two years. Um, And those two years specifically were really during the height of the pandemic. And so many, um, if you're not familiar with the Trevor Project, Um, They are the nation's largest suicide prevention and crisis intervention hotline for LGBTQIA youth. Um, And during the pandemic, so many LGBT individuals um, were having to shelter in place with maybe family members that weren't affirming their gender or their identity or their sexuality, um, which increased the need for the Trevor Project's services almost double. And we're really, really, you know, excited to be able to participate. And the level at which we participate in relationship to the size of our business is much more significant than some of the larger corporations who are making donations during Pride Month. Um, although, I think... All yeah. right, name drop. <laughs> no, no, no. We're not going to us. Um, and this year, we got to partner with Glisten, which is uh, an organization and network of educators and, um, and volunteers who are really working towards more inclusion in the educational system and making um, school a welcoming place for LGBTQIA youth, um, which is so important. And what we contributed to specifically this year is their policy map. So they work at state and national levels with um, policymakers, and there's so much um, anti-LGBT legislation around schools and parenting and what they're allowed to say and what kind of health care they're about to provide 
their LGBTQIA youth. And we're, we thought that this year, considering how much of that is under risk, like that was the right organization to try to help fund this year. Yeah, that's fantastic. Does it like motivating for your employees? I know it's important to you personally. Like, I don't see much about it on the website. It's not something that you're like advertising a ton, right? We talk about it in, in social media and, and we try to put it out there, but I'd say about 20% of our employees are non-binary and I'd say over 50% of our employees uh, are in the LGBTQIA community. And uh, it's really important to everyone. Like, you know, we have our Slack channels, like everyone's sharing like like new books, new literature. Did you see this article? Here are other great organizations to donate to this month. One of our like primary interview questions is like, how do you feel about working with the LGBTQIA community? And like, you know, h- how well-versed do you feel on, on these topics? And so, yeah, it's, it's an important part of our brand culture. But I, I think that like, I joke like that queer rights or, or LGBTQIA rights are just like good rights, right? You know, everybody has the right to be who they want to be. And that is not exclusive to, to the queer community specifically. And when we talk about expansiveness and genderfulness, that is for everyone to participate. You know, like doing a collab with Casey Musgraves, like that might not seem like genderful, but it is. Like Casey is um, one of the only females in country music, writing, producing, like art directing her entire brand and her music. And she's highly liberal and... um, Country music is like this old school boys club and country music radio won't even play her music. She's not allowed to be nominated as a country music album. And so she is a female expanding the possibilities and the definition of her gender and her field. And that is what genderful is. It is about taking down the constructs and redefining things for yourself and on your own terms and like creating the space that you want to see for the future for other people. Casey's a total badass, but she's also a straight woman and, and we love her. And, and so our values are really, while they're rooted in kind of LGBTQIA identity, they are really far more expansive than for everybody. Let's turn the wheel a little bit in a different direction. Um, you know, not that you guys haven't been through enough in the last two years of this pandemic. Now that you've got financial advisors and whatnot, um, and everyone is talking about a coming recession, possibly. Are you forecasting for that? And I don't know, what kind of advice uh, would you give to other business owners in terms of preparing for something like that? I mean, hope for the best, plan for the worst, I think is just like the name of the game, right? We are optimistic about the back half of this year and we're optimistic about next year, but we will, you know, be able to pivot and adjust if necessary as things come. Um, Luckily, like our product development timeline is pretty long, but we are able to adjust units almost up to like just a few months out. So um, we haven't pulled back on what we're planning to do for the rest of this year or what we're planning to launch for next year. And we're really excited about all of that, but we will adjust our units as necessary and we'll adjust our spend as necessary um, as as we see how things turn out. But I love that we provide small comforts for people and our candles are, we call it an inclusive price point. Our candles are $36 and it's a price point that we hope more people can participate in than 
an 80 or $90 candle. So while, um, you know, if a recession does come, you know, maybe some people will be turning in their zero true dawns for some. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Give me one other prediction for the future. What else are you, what, what, what are you looking forward to? Oh my gosh, so much. I'm just excited about what we're doing. You know, I, we, we want to open stores. We have new product verticals that outside of just candles and fine fragrance that we're launching in the future, we have some really exciting, we have a very exciting like celebrity collaboration coming out in the fall. That'll be our first follow-up to Casey. You know, I'm just really excited to see the brand be fully articulated at more touch points for the customer. And it's just exciting to see cultural conversations and like wider values start to like merge towards voicemails and voicemails to merge towards a wider audience. And so that, that just, that, that just makes me so excited to, to see the brand possibly like enter more homes for more people. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Matthew, for being with me today. Oh, thank you, Christine. This is really fun. Matthew, what really stuck with me is how dedicated he is to his vision, or rather really multiple visions, and how he lets them play together. And I mean that both in how he's built his company and how he envisions and creates and brings forth a story behind every one of his products. His aesthetic and his ideas aren't just meant for himself, despite how much fun he must have naming his candles like Tantrum and Cowboy Kush. He said that, I think that especially millennial and Gen Z consumers have a really, really evolved sense of what an equitable version of inclusion looks like. And they want to see the places that they shop and the brands they engage with reflect their vision for that. His brand isn't just making things smell nice and having fun. It's also working to break down the gender binary in retail and make it more inclusive. And that's a mission we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend who you think might like our show, please just send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you have an idea for a founder you'd love to hear from, drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. Or you can let me know on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who might be something Matthew dreamed up because he is also a mix of vanilla and vinyl, is Joshua Christensen. Our associate producer is Blake Odom, and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. What I Know.